Welcome to the Inked Film Podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week, we discuss the middle nine chapters of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring, part one of The Lord of the Rings. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. So here we are, the middle chunk of Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, we're going to be covering the middle nine chapters, as I said, which is actually chapter six, The Old Forest, going through 12 in book one, and then the first two chapters of book two, which ends at the Council of Elrond. So if you were if you were trying to figure out uh, where you want, if you were reading along by chance, uh, that's where to read to, I guess. Man, I... It really sank in that we were finally doing this project for me. I think in the and fr- I was still a little bit in shock in the first episode, and <laughs> like it, it, we I was like, this is our podcast, and we're doing one of my favorite things ever. We're doing Fellowship of the Ring, Lord of the Rings, and like it, yeah. this, during this s- section of reading, I was like, we're doing this for the podcast, man. We we gotta show up and just like <laughs> bring it for this project. So I'm excited to get into this middle section and talk about a certain someone who is like kind of an interesting character that doesn't show up in the movies. Oh, okay. I think I know who you're talking about. <laughs> All right. So yeah, I mean, based off of that, I think you're ready to just get right into it. And I think I'm ready too. Yeah. I think we're just going to pick up right where we left off. Sounds good. All right. So we are in chapter six, which is called the old forest. Now this is all the way back in the Shire. If you remember, uh, the group is leaving the house. Uh, they leave early and they take their ponies. This is the house that Frodo is using. It's like the fake house that he was moving to. And they take their ponies and they head out towards the old forest, which they've discussed being dangerous. They leave the, they leave the Shire. Tolkien personifies the trees as being odd and kind of overgrowing and, and being kind of ominous, which is actually foreshadowing what happens a little bit later here. Um, they feel like they're being watched. Yeah, I actually felt like they were... I thought we were going to get Ents like really early on in the book for some reason. I didn't remember. I was like, do Ents show up this early on? And this is like a different kind of tree. It's like these are just like trees that like kind of manipulate the paths. I think it's all connected, you know. I don't know. Old Man Willow is who it is later. And and it seems like he's kind of like an Ent. I I don't know. I'd be interested to know if he is that or something different. I'm not really sure. I'm not steeped enough in this lore to tell you. He doesn't move, right? Old Man Willow just hangs out. Yeah, I guess he doesn't walk around. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. That's true. Because like the and but he does talk. Yeah, and have like desires. But in like a weird stuff, way, yeah. he talks like through like rustling of the leaves, and he doesn't have like full on voice, kind of like the ants. Yeah, there's a lot of them kind of going through the woods here. They eating meals, going through the woods. They're still pretty happy, still eating a lot of food at this point in the journey, struggling through the underbrush. They've come upon the river uh, Withywindle, uh, which is kind of a fun name to say. And they follow a footpath around the edge of the water. And then all of a sudden, uh, they start to grow quite sleepy. Frodo topples over, and they start to hear words, like speaking to them about water and sleep. 
Frodo actually falls uh, asleep in the water. Sam, I think, sees him as he's under this giant willow tree under the water. And Sam has to rescue him, pull him out of the river. Um, then Merry and Pippin get trapped inside the tree. And and Frodo and Sam have to light a fire and, and try and burn the tree, which ends up angering it. And, the, you know, goes to swallow them even more. And Frodo runs yelling for help. And the whole forest seems angry. And then all of a sudden, Frodo hears this deep voice singing nonsense. And Tom Bombadil shows up. Oh, Tom Bombadil. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I remember the whole song, but it got stuck in my head. Yeah, he's got his own little like theme song, right? That he sings. And his song seems to be kind of magical, too. Like, it has an effect on the, on the, on the tree. He, this, he's an old man in a battered hat. He's, he's big and heavy, but he's not quite human height. He has yellow boots and a blue co- co- coat. And he's carrying a large leaf that's filled with white water lilies. Tom knows old man Willow, and so he sings a song that's going to freeze him. And then he kind of lectures the Willow, and it works. And they get uh, Merry and Pippin out. And then Tom Bombadil invites him to his home. They hear him sing as he goes off, and then they follow after. They come upon a well-tended path, which leads to Tom Bombadil's house atop a hill. They go inside, feeling better, and songs greet them as they enter. And that's the end of the chapter. So this is more of of kind of childlike fantasy, right? Oh, yeah. Where there's songs, and and I wanted to ask you specifically about the prose in this. this, I don't know if it changes or not, or if if Tolkien's always like this, Mm -hmm. but like even things that characters aren't saying are songs or poems, like there's so much rhyming going on. Yeah. And is that just like a Tolkien thing or... Yeah, I mean, Tolkien Tolkien was a poet. Um, He was into language. And a lot of those, I mean, I have to go through and, and, and scan each one of them, but I know a lot of these rhymes that you get in the book itself are metrical. And by that, I mean they ha- they are metrical in the way that, like, Shakespeare is. People often say Shakespeare's um, iambic pentameter um, is his most famous metrical. I, I'm, I'm not going to use all the words correctly because it's been a while since I've studied poetry, but um, I think it's called a foot. Each, each grouping. Anyway, you have stressed and unstressed syllables, and uh, when you do them in a certain way, it creates this little bouncing sound that uh, that he uses here, and he, he it creates that kind of sing-songy thing, and then he has a certain rhyme scheme that he follows for different songs. Um, so yeah, he's crafting each one of these songs like they're each their own poem, I guess, so they're very lyrical. It's amazing. I just It's like he's in the process of... of writing a story he's also creating poetry that's you know that makes sense within the story and a lot in a lot of ways is like foreshadowing or setting up somebody's backstory a lot of legwork being done in the poems yeah i mean it's amazing and and a lot of that's some really clever bit of writing i mean i think the songs get a bit of a bad a lot of the people i've talked to are kind of annoyed by the amount of songs that are in these books um Mm -hmm. find them a bit excessive but you also get like the one ring to rule them all. You get like you get these rhymes that are that are cut of the same cloth. And so it's like you kind of mm-hmm. like you're going to get I feel like you have to if you're going to get the good, you have to take some of the some of the excessive s- songs that go on in this book. There were more songs than I remember. I'll definitely oh, there's say a lot that. And like there were some times that I was like, oh, man, another another song. Well, it's always like it's always like Tom or or whoever. Somebody breaks out into a song in most books would maybe give you like a small description of what the song was like or nothing and just say he sung a song or whatever. But like in this book, you get the song verbatim every time. You get like two pages of song. <laughs> yeah. 
And then I'm just lucky because often the person says, sing it again. <laughs> and then they do. And luckily, he doesn't write it again. <laughs> there was a really funny part where where uh, I think it was Bilbo at some point was saying was singing something. And they were like, sing it again. He's like, I, do, I don't th- think I have the energy. And I was like, thank God, man. Thank God. <laughs> That's a long song. All right, so uh, let's move. Let's move into Tom Bombadil's house here. So Tom Bombadil inside there is a woman with long yellow hair, green gown, and a gold belt. The white water lilies surround her, and she come when, when they come in. She says that her name is Goldberry, and she is the daughter of the river. She closes the door and tells them to fear nothing, and she sees that Frodo is an elf friend. Uh, they watch her as she moves about the house with grace. And in the background, they can hear Tom Bombadil just like singing as he's going about the like other rooms doing chores oh, and stuff. Tom Bombadil, <laughs> it's like singing to himself. The, uh, she she says that Tom is the ma- the master of wood and water and hill. He he is a master, but he doesn't own. He comes uh, he comes in from the back room wearing a crown of leaves, and he takes them to a room with uh, four mattresses and four pairs of slippers, which is kind of amazing. Um, but I guess he's been setting that up. They, uh, it's also got like baths, so they're able to wash and they return and they eat dinner with him and they're all singing merrily and Goldberry wishes them good night. Now, if this seems like a very weird turn for this story to take, it's because it kind of is. They're off on the road, like in danger. And then all of a sudden now they're with this weird dude in his house and he's singing songs and making them food. And Goldberry, the daughter of the river is there, which I don't know what you make of her, but yeah, it's a, it's quite a change for this story. What do you think this stop in the journey and going to tom bombadil's house and stay represents to the story is this just like a reprieve is this something for us to see like this is the opposite of what a mordor can be or like to see like the opposite like force within the world where it's like we're gonna see this ultimate evil so we need like some ultimate good set up yeah i mean i i guess my 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 off-the-cuff thoughts are that tom bombadil is very reminiscent to me of like ancient god like gods from myth that are very tied to nature and you know wearing the crown of leaves and stuff i just think of like certain kinds of like greek gods and stuff he is very like ambivalent about everything that's going on he's just very into like the happenings of the world and he's you know he's got the daughter of the river living with him so I guess in that sense, yeah, it creates kind of this opposite. It's an opposite in in the in a in a weird way because it's not against. It's an opposite, but it's neutral kind of thing. It's like he represents mm-hmm. the world, I guess, in some weird way. Like he's he's going to be there, bef- you know, before it began and after it ends. It's weird, kind of, to personify him in this way and have him interact with our characters. But yeah, I think that's kind of what Tolkien's going for here. Like he's this he's this almost godlike figure. He's this immortal. But he, but he is above it all, and and kind of remains neutral to you know the suffering of the world. Yeah, I read some some stuff online about how people are like this just doesn't fit in the story, and like had talked to Tolkien about it before he passed, and like he always stood by it, and he's yeah. like, yes, I wrote. He, apparently, he like wrote Tom Bombadil as like a separate. It was like something not really related, but he wanted this to be like thread into the Lord of the Rings. Oh, interesting. So I was like, I was like, I just. He, he i guess he loved the character so much he wanted it in there and i i think it's cool um because like i said it's it's kind of that opposite force and but it gets me thinking like right away I, I, like they give he gives numerous reasons why tom bombadil would never do this and that and none of these things will ever happen but like what would a tom bombadil and he even might be like weakened at this in this current state that he's in like like um 
because magic is kind of leaving the world as we come to see like like the elves and some no, of the more mystical things right some of the more mystical things are leaving mm-hmm. middle earth and and then the age of man is becoming like very relevant i just wonder if like he like if he was like full powered and had to go against like a sauron and even if he had like i don't know what if his forest or whatever that he tends over was threatened by something like a sauron yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, it seems to me like he he wouldn't fight it though. I don't know. I just could it, uh, he would even if he stepped on his lilies. Yeah, maybe he would just preserve his lilies and like sing at him to go away. I don't know. He's kind of a he kind of breaks the story a little bit, you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. you if you think about it too much, you can kind of run a you can run a foul like why isn't he going to fight Sauron? He's this like immortal being, you know? It's because he doesn't. Well, that's the, the way that they, I guess to, for the listeners, the way that they explain it away is just that like he doesn't care exactly. Yeah, Frodo dreams that first night, and he sees a black wall of rock, a dark gate, then a pinnacle of stone with a man standing at its top. Fell voices echo from below, and a mighty eagle sweeps in to carry a white-haired man away. So we learn later what that is. You know what I mean? That's that's Gandalf. Yeah, we 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 knew from prior knowledge what it was, but like the like you know. Somebody who didn't know it's supposed to be like this, this mysterious thing. Yeah. Now, do you think this is what the same vision that he had before? Is it the, cause like the, the sea was very relevant in that one. And then yeah. in this, it's just more about like Gandalf escaping. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it could have been, there was a point where there was like a tower and a forest, I think, or something. So I was kind of yeah. picturing Isengard, but, um, it might not have been, I'm not sure. So Pippin also has a nightmare and his is about willow trees. And then Mary dreams of a river and wor- worries about being drowning, but Sam has no dreams at all. Do you make anything of Sam not having any dreams here? Like, what can we, what, what can we, what can we learn about his character from that? I wonder if it's. I mean, this is definitely not right, but I'm gonna go for it. Um, I wonder <laughs> if it's because he's like this, like he's the audience, right? So, like, if you were to imprint a certain dream or something that he had, then we as the audience wouldn't connect as much to him. Because it's like if we just if he's just a more of a blank slate, we can maybe connect with that more. Okay, so you you th- you think of Sam as like kind of the audience stand-in then in this book? I've always yeah, I've always been like I'm Sam in this story. Yeah, um, I yeah, I took it more as just that he's simple and that he um has a clarity of purpose and of and of like sp- like spirit, I guess, or desire, and that he wants to be here, he wants to help, he's not. He doesn't have anxiety about it. He doesn't he doesn't have second guessing. And because of that, I guess like he's able to sleep untroubled because he he takes comfort in like knowing that he's doing the thing that he wants to do. That makes sense cuz yeah, he's not troubled by anything. Yeah. Um so they all wake up to Tom Bombadil whistling and he shows them out a window and they see this land and they see like the barrows down in the distance or the barrow downs. Um Tom Bombadil sings some more this time to wake them and tell them about breakfast. He doesn't join them, though, um, but he just goes about the house and they can hear him singing. Uh, sing, uh, oh, uh, Goldberry starts singing, this time a rain song. There's a lot of singing here. I'm not going to go through all the songs, but every one of these songs we get verbatim, I should say. I had written down something about this. Okay. I know we already talked about songs and stuff and rhyming, but uh-huh. what is it with... Is is Tolkien like the start of, of fantasy and songs being intertwined, or is he just like... He's just so into the fact that there's songs... Like, what is it with fantasy and songs being... Because it's like, if you read your Game of Thrones, there's always like some sort of songs going on, and I feel like there's not a lot of other genres where there's a lot of singing and songs and poems. So... 
Uh, a couple of questions there. I think uh, as far as like the history of fantasy, I'm not steeped enough in my knowledge of especially like pre-Tolkien fantasy to say if he really popularized this or not. I would tend to say yes, just because he was so popular um, and a lot of people have been affected by him. But to kind of widen it out to why fantasy as a genre has it, I would say that it's because world building is such an important element in fantasy as a genre. And when you're crafting a world, you like that's part of the appeal, right? This other world. And when you do that, you have to create culture. And in creating culture, you often leads you to create art that is representative of that culture. So a lot of fantasy will use will use songs and and music um, as some sort of like thing you can impart through words because you can often write it like a poem and you can say like this is the kind of thing that this culture celebrates and uses to convey emotion or whatever it is um so yeah in that sense it is kind of a storytelling technique to craft i think like world building that's just my off-the-cuff opinion that's cool yeah i hadn't i hadn't thought of that because you can't really show the audience a painting in a, in right. a book you know you can describe you it physically. but like you can you can actually transcribe a song which right yeah that can be cool Tom Bombadil says that the trees are angry and they're they're mad at the things that go free and destroy and that the uh, Great Willow's heart is rotten and powerful. They hear a lot of different histories about old kingdoms that came and went. Um, Tom Bombadil has seen the passage of time and basically like the, the group of men who died who led to these Barrow Whites walking the earth and the Barrow Downs. Um, and then at this point, all of a sudden, the four of them kind of remind remember why they're here. <laughs> They've kind of been completely like it's it's almost like he casts a spell over them with these songs, too. Like they're enthralled by a lot of this stuff. Right. So Tom Bombadil is talking of the long, long ago ancient times. And finally, they ask him who he is. And he says he is the eldest. He was here before the river and trees, before all, before the Dark Lord himself, that he's immortal, basically. Goldberry comes in and Tom Bombadil wants to eat and drink, setting the table up for supper and the hobbits continue to act like they're under a spell. Do you think that that's what's actually happening here? Are they actually under some sort of magical? I think thrall? it was like definitely influence. I don't know if it was like specifically like a spell that they were like being controlled, but I feel like his influence was like affecting them into feeling like sleepy or feeling like they because like they talked about how they were like completely tr in a trance listening to his stories and they didn't know if it was weeks or days or how long it had been. They didn't. They hadn't eat, thought of eating in such a long time. So I think he's just so magical. Like maybe he just like exudes all this magic that like affects the people around him or the creatures, hobbits, people. Okay. I like that. Yeah. Like he just sings and it's like he has such power that it just affects everything around him. So Goldberry sings to them next, um, then wishes them each good night. Uh, Tom Bombadil asks questions, but he seems to know a lot about them already. He's heard some news from Gildor. And Frodo then tells him everything. And then Frodo takes out the ring and hands it to him, which is yeah. an, quite an interesting moment. So he puts it up to his eye and laughs, puts it on his little finger, doesn't disappear. And it just has no effect on him. So then he tosses it back to Frodo, who then is worried that it's even the right ring. So he puts it on to test it and it works. He turns invisible, but Tom can also can see him even when he's invisible. Yep. So this is where I was just like, this yeah. is so like, this is why he's so interesting. This is why I was like, like, yeah, it kind of breaks it, but it's like. Dude, like, there's something else in, in the world of Lord of the Rings that isn't affected by the ring. Yeah, it kind of undercuts the power of the ring. So I can see why, you know, we haven't we, we're going to try not to talk too much about the movies, but I can see why Peter Jackson left it out. 
because it undercuts the power of the ring, right? If there's this guy, goofy guy who's just unaffected by it. So, yeah, at the end of this chapter, they decide that they're going to set out in the morning and they're going to try and avoid the Barrow Downs. And then uh, Tom Bombadil teaches them a rhyme to sing that if, if they get caught into trouble. And then that's the end of chapter seven. So I also wanted to ask you, since you put me on the spot a little bit with Tom Bombadil, who is Goldberry and why, what is she and why is she Dude, there? That's what I was wondering. Like, it's like he's like he goes into all this lore about past like the men who come from the the west i think that like he's just talking about all of this stuff and i think there's like another degree of of lore that like i just think that like tolkien never gave anyone well he might have too we should also say like neither of us are like super steeped in the silmarillion and like all this other stuff like someone who's like a true tolkien scholar might know the answer to these questions right so yeah, as far as we know from this book, the information that we've been we've been given, like I feel like there's like another layer of lore where like she's obviously important. Like she's she's powerful. She is hanging out with Tom Bombadil who's like seemingly like immortal. The he is like the universe or something. So she's I I don't necessarily know what she means to the story. I know that like Tom Bombadil seems to really be fond of her, but I don't really know what she what she is doing for the story. Do you? Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, honestly, it's kind of perplexed, kind of perplexes me. Also, Tom doesn't just seem to be like, I don't know, to like hanging out with her. Like, it seems like he's helping her and like protecting her in some way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, he, like I don't know. That was the, the, the impression I got was that she was like living with him out of some sort of protection. So, and, you know, in that sense, maybe she represents the river. She's the daughter of the river. So maybe he's like protecting the earth and she is a representative of that. Um, but I feel like it's a stretch because I don't know how much of that's really in there. So the last thing I want to say about Tom Bombadil for now, at least, and then we can move on, is uh, a writer named Sarah Gailey, who I've met and hung out with once. Uh, super cool. Um, she wrote a article for BarnesandNoble.com called Fear No Evil on Sorting Hats and Forest Gods. And I shared this article with you in the past. Yeah, you had me read it when we were driving back from the coast, right? Yeah, I think so. When you were visiting, yeah. Yeah, it's a great article. I hadn't thought of Tom Bombadil and like his what he meant for the story in a long time because for the past like like I said I haven't read this in like ten years so I came at it from the perspective of like the Sorting Hat and what the Sorting Hat yeah. means to Harry Potter and that whole world and how he's like this all powerful being. Yeah, I mean I don't want to step on the toes of the of the article honestly. I I just want to recommend it to our listeners. Check it out. I think we're gonna we're gonna link it in our show notes so you'll be able to find it that way. Or just search for it. Yeah, it's called Fear No Evil on Sorting Hats and Forest Gods. And it's basically all about, yeah, the Sorting Hat and Tom Bombadil and how each of them in their own way are these like super creepy immortals who are maybe manipulating people and it's not obvious in what ways and all this stuff. It's really cool. And I definitely recommend you check that out. All right. Chapter eight is called Fog on the Barrow Downs. Now, I felt like this chapter was was just I felt like this chapter was in response to the previous chapter that we got. So we got like the Tom Bombadil set up and then we got this situation that they get themselves into. Yeah. And then he comes and rescues them. Yeah. And then it's like and then he's like, but never again. Yeah. Almost like these three chapters are all just like the Tom Bombadil chapters. I think that's probably safe to say. So yeah, real quickly, he feeds them breakfast. They head down into the downs which they weren't going to go to, but they kind of get drawn into it, it seems like. They come upon two standing stones, and in the darkness, Frodo falls off his pony. He loses the others. 
He starts hearing them calling for help. He tries to find them. Here's a cry. Then he finds this great barrow and a voice comes out of the ground talking to him. And uh, a tall white figure kind of leans over him as two eyes pale, a pale light. And uh, then he like passes out. <laughs> he wakes up in a barrow. He's like got his arms folded over like he's basically in a grave. He's been taken by the white and he's he um he kind of gathers his courage. And he, there's this weird green light. And he can see around him, and he can see that the others are laying nearby, and they've been changed. They're now wearing white clothing, and they have, like, treasure all around them. And he, a song begins about the Dark Lord coming, and he sees this arm creeping along, and it comes and seizes a sword. Uh, I'm sorry. He seizes his sword and slices at this creeping arm, but the sword, like, splinters when he does it. And then, then he remembers the rhyme Tom Bombadil taught them, he starts singing it, and he hears this answering call because Tom Bombadil just like appears. He's there, and he opens up the barrow, the the you know the grave area. Light comes in, and he comes in, and he like sings at the white who run who like is cast away by his song, and then he carries out the others. He comes out with treasure. He sings a song to the others who wake them up, and like I said, like his songs are clearly magical. Um, they wonder where their clothes are, but they're just gone now. So Tom Bombadil says like, "Don't worry about it." And then he goes singing off through the downs, and uh, he comes back later with uh, six ponies. All of their ponies he has, and because they all ran off, and it's because they all befriended his pony named Old Fatty Lumpkin, and he's named them all now, and they they like forever answer to these names because he has this like weird connection with them, right? Tom Bumbadil takes a brooch, and then he gives these daggers to the rest of them. Um, he wants to give the brooch to uh, Goldberry, he says, so that's kind of interesting too. Is there like, are they maybe romantically involved? I don't know. And he says something about how he remembers the the one who wore the brooch before. Like mm-hmm. he, he found, so like this white had been like, like finding people and killing them. And uh, there's, it's like ruins. There's also like a ruins out, out in the barrens. Right. So there's like yeah. seemingly there was like a well, city. Well, it's like there. this old, it was like this old city or kingdom that he remembers from way back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they travel again with Tom Bombadil who sings the whole time. And he starts singing about a kingdom long ago, and he, he remembers something sad about it. Then all of a sudden, they remember the Black Riders. They're like, "Oh yeah, there's Black Riders chasing us." And Tom Bombadil says he doesn't he doesn't think they were pursued, but he says, "I am not a master of riders." Like like basically just like bowing out. Like, "Yep, I don't not a master of those things." Uh, they're from Mordor, uh, you know. And he's just like, "All right, farewell." He says, "Go to Bree, find the find the prancing pony." And uh, he's got to go back to Goldberry, who's waiting for them, for him. And uh, Mary says, there are hobbits and big people in Bree. And Frodo reminds him, he says, when we're in Bree, call me Mr. Underhill. And then they head off. And that's the end of that chapter. And that's, uh, yeah, Tom Bombadil goes back to his abode. I don't know, man. He does break, he breaks the universe because it's like, he's (laughs) even more world-breaking than like the eagles the eagle argument and i'm not somebody who's like says that like the eagles like i I feel like that's a dumb thing i think tom bombadil breaks (laughs) it even more because it's like seemingly you could just sing the song because they weren't no they weren't any longer in his like his area right his zone that he protects Mm -hmm. when they were in the barrow so like you would think like if you sang his song he might show up if he liked you enough if you're like say in the mines of moria or something or somewhere (laughs) That you need help from a uh, singing. It's also so silly that like Frodo's in the situation. All of a sudden, he starts being like old Tom Bombadil, Tom Bombadillo, or whatever. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's like it's such a silly song. I don't know. 
I it think it breaks is... the story in more ways than one. Not just in like the in-universe mechanics, but also he's just kind of this ridiculous figure, and he does weird things to the tone of the story. Um, yeah, but I'd like to see him interact with with Gandalf. Like that would be an interesting yeah. interaction. Like a like a calm. Well, Gandalf. Gandalf talks about him later a little bit. Yeah, which yeah. I was like, whoa! So he knows who this is. Yeah. Uh, I say we move on from Tom Bombadil and we leave him in the dust. He can See you, sing his songs uh, until eternity. <laughs> so chapter nine, at the sign of the prancing pony, finally they arrive at Bree. Um, we hear that, yeah, there are hobbits and men living together here, that Hobbiton thinks they're weird. There's this big info dump all about the village at the beginning of the chapter, but Tolkien gets away with these sorts of things, even though modern writers would probably be served best by not doing this. We, we get an omniscient thing where we see a dark figure sneak over the gate as they enter and they arrive at the Prancing Pony, which I submit to you is the most famous fantasy inn of all time. I believe it. Yeah, I can't think of. I, I mean, there has to, there can't be anything bigger than that. The Prancing Pony. Let me think. Things that come to yes. mind are, obvi- are like things like like the Leaky Cauldron or like mm-hmm. something like that. The Three Broomsticks or like but like that's just because like I like Harry Potter. It's not because like yeah. it's more famous. Yeah, and then there's like the uh, the Red Dragon Inn is like a Dungeons and Dragons thing that mm-hmm. like became its own board game named the Red Dragon Inn. I think there's other famous fantasy inns, and then like you can look at many different series in which the characters go to an inn. Like it's kind of become a trope of fantasy that they spend time in an inn and talk, you know, talking it over. But I think it all comes back to the Prancing Pony. I, I honestly believe this is the most fam- famous inn in all of fantasy because it's the first one. It's the one that kicks it all off. The whole thing of it is like the ultimate fantasy trope. They meet a stranger there who ends up becoming part of their party and helping them. You yeah. know, like it's I don't know. It's just it's perfect. And the alliteration reading is nice, it, too. Yeah. Oh, true. Yeah, it's got a good name. But yeah, reading it, it um it makes me want to play those kind of games. Like it makes me want to play D&D. It makes me want to um be a part of these adventure stories, these fantasy stories. So I can see also why it's become so um, impactful. Yeah, you know, and and like has lasted over time, the inn and fantasy. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, and speaking of that kind of thing, anytime anybody's a ranger in any game ever, I always yeah. think of Aragorn. Sure. Well, he's like the original, like he's the genesis of the ranger class in D anD. d Yeah, it's all based off of this stuff. Mm-hmm. So they find the innkeeper. Frodo gives him their names, but he says Underhill is his name. Um, there's this big crowd. It's interesting because they actually have like they have separate rooms. So they have a private room to dine in. And then they have the rooms they're going to sleep in. And then they have the main room where, like, everybody else is. So at first they go to this private room. But then after their dinner, they decide to go out to the main room. And when they go out to the main room, it's, like, packed. Everybody's out there having a party. And that's where uh, Frodo first sees Strider. Um, And Strider is, like, hooded and kind of creepy looking, just like the the movie. I mean, it's kind of amazing how one-for-one a lot of this stuff is. But like I said, we're not going to talk about the movie too much. Um, it's funny because the under there are underhill hobbits there who like take him in as as like a long lost cousin because mm-hmm. they're like, oh, you must be related to us. And then yeah, um, that would be so hard to to sell to somebody. That, yeah. like, you're like, yeah, I'm an underhill. Yeah. And then Frodo says he's researching a book, and everyone gets all excited about that. And starts telling him all these stories. Sam and Pippin are having a great time. Uh, people are start asking questions about the underhills and frodo starts kind of getting nervous and, and yeah this is when he notices a strange weather-beaten man watching them with a travel strain st- stained cloak um the landlord says he is a ranger but not knowing who doesn't know who he is 
Round here, he's known as Strider. And uh, Frodo sees Strider looking at him, and he beckons him over. So Frodo goes over to him, introduces himself, and the Strider seems to know many things about him. And he says, you know, you need to stop your friends from talking more. And Frodo realizes that Pippin is telling a story about Bilbo's party, his 11th, 100, what is it, 111st birthday? Oh, yeah. 111th, yeah. Yeah. So he's telling the story of that party, which Frodo knows ends with him putting on the ring. And he's like, oh, shit, he can't tell this story. So he jumps up on a table and he starts um, trying to get all their attention. And then everyone's like calls for a song. So he starts singing this song that Bilbo made up about an inn, which we get verbatim. Real long song. And um, <laughs> and there's a it's a loud song with long and, and then um, there's loud and long applause. And they want him to sing again. So he does. And he's. As he's singing, he gets like really like excited and he's like jumping around and he slips and falls. But as he falls, he vanishes because his finger is just like drawn to the ring. And it sounds like he kind of slips it into like into his own pocket and slips it on, which is definitely a little different than the movie, but still cool. Um, and yeah, he kind of disappears. Everyone's like in shock and he, and he sneaks away under the table and reappears over by Strider. And then he tries to act like, uh, oh, yeah, um, this is I, I didn't vanish. I just was over here. I snuck away. But like people aren't buying it. And, and a lot of people are like really surprised and just like debating what happened. And uh, Mr. Butterbur says, like, oh, I want to have a chat later. That's the landlord. And that's the end of chapter nine. So this is cool because this is a blend of like, I, I guess everybody comes through Bree. Every every race of person comes through Bree. And mm -hmm. everybody's like very weary of of anything that's not normal. So like everybody's loving Frodo and the gang. And then when he disappears, the, everything dies and the whole part, everybody leaves and they're like, we got to get the hell out of here. And then well, like, and there's some, a couple some, of shifty fellows who sneak out, right? Some, yeah. some shifty guys <laughs> sneak out like and like we know where that's heading. Like like obviously they're like some sort of spies or something. All right. Chapter 10 is simply called Strider. Uh, Strider is back in the private room with them and he uh, jokes that he wants a reward to tell him what he knows and the reward he wants is that he wants to accompany them and there's a funny moment where like Frodo and Sam especially are all very like distrustful of him and they they don't know you know who this guy is if he, if he is who he says he is all this other stuff he tells a story about how when he was out hunting you know in the in the woods he basically overheard them um, talking and he heard Frodo say call me Mr. Underhill when we're in Bree so he knows that it's this this is alias and the mention of the writers he warns that they're going to come and that they're going to find find them you know and he he hints that there are those in the inn who can't be trusted he offers to be their guide landlord brings them some candles he comes in and uh tells them that he was supposed to be on a lookout for Baggins and he was supposed to give him this letter which is an important moment because we find out that he has this letter from Gandalf that he forgot to send. And the letter basically would have told Frodo that Gandalf uh, came by and was pulled away by other business. And that's why he didn't show up. The letter also says that he should look for a man named Strider and a man named Strider happens to be in the room with them. And they read um, a little part at the end, which has the, the poem that goes along with Aragorn and, and, well, I keep calling him Aragorn, but Strider for now. Uh, yeah. And they say that his true, true, his true name is Aragorn. Um, and I don't remember the whole, the whole poem, but I feel like that poem is one of the most popular things to come out of this, this series. And 
it, it's it can be applied in so many different situations, but it's so good, man. It's like it's basically yeah. just well, don't judge we, a book by its we, cover. It's what we laid with, right? led with. Um, all <laughs> the school does not <laughs> laid with. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's it's like a don't trust, a, don't judge a book by its cover. Like just because something um, is good doesn't mean that it appears to be good. Um, yeah, and here, which, yeah, the and I feel like Tolkien is a sucker for these type of characters. Because we're talking about hobbits, who are kind of seen as like the one of some of the lowest creatures in this in this fantasy world, where it's like nobody really thinks about them. They're over in the Shire, and come to find out that like they have this fortitude and they're able to be the, the ring bearers without completely succumbing to the ring's power, and because it would wield others more, it like in more in greater ways than than it wields these hobbits. So it's kind of an advantage for them. And they're, I mean, at the end of the day, they're the biggest, some of the biggest heroes in this, in this story. Yeah, for sure, man. Um, I, I think it's also important to note that that second line, not all who wander are lost. I mean, I think that's been often repeated too. And it's a nice thing about, yeah, just because someone travels a lot, travels the world, um, you know, wanders, goes, you know, seeking adventure doesn't mean that they're a lost soul who doesn't have a home and doesn't, you know what I mean? So yeah. in this sense, it's it's talking about Strider, but you can take it to apply to mean so much more. So, yeah, it's it's a great that's a those are great lines, and um, yeah, I agree. One of the probably one of the ones most quoted from from here. So it's uh, we also find out that Mary isn't there, um, that he's gone out because uh, he didn't go to the common room earlier, and so they're like, oh, I wonder where Mary is. Um, yeah, all this time they're learning about Aragorn, son of Arathor, and he basically vows to protect them. And he pulls out his broken sword and shows it to them to show that he is who he is, says he is. He also says, like, if I if I wasn't if I wasn't Aragorn and I was here for the ring, I could have killed you and taken it by now, which is kind of funny. And true. Um, and true. And this sword is is like. I feel like this is the beginning of like rare equipment and like D and D and like really power. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's well, like, the the ring is, but yeah, yeah, the true, yeah, that's also uh, <laughs> another good example. But it's like, oh, it's a broken sword that once reforged shall. It's like the uh, it's so cool. Yeah, for sure, man. Um, so at that moment, Mary runs in and he says he's seen the Black Riders. They're out in the village, and he he went up and tried to like overhear them, heard them talking. And then all of a sudden he was unconscious and uh, Aragorn just says something about the black breath is an explanation for like why he fell unconscious. Um, the other little hobbit there who's been like helping them is the one who found him, brought him back. And then Strider says, we're going to stay in this private room, not go to your sleeping rooms, which they had like that was original plan. And then Sam goes into their room and makes little effigies of them in each bed. And then they all return to the private room and they wait there and fall asleep together basically while strider uh, sits there uh watching and that is not a detail that i remembered from the book i thought that was a wholly invented by the by the movie thing but nope really? that's what happens in the book too yeah yep. i didn't realize they actually did that it's very cinematic so i thought it was an invention yeah that scene is like phew, editing everything in that scene is awesome but we'll get to that in the movie episode uh yeah. the black breath and the, the riders is something that we had not the black breath but the riders is something that we had talked about and we were tracking kind of the violence and yeah. like their powers and stuff. So I figured we should touch on this again from our first episode. We were, we talked about that. Yeah. They're just like riding around in Brie talking to people. Yeah. But now we start to see <laughs> um, 
that they have like powers of like it was like black breath that they used to like kind of put these people to sleep but then they were also able to like extract information out of them while they were out so they're they're like forcibly taking information did did i just make that up (laughs) i honestly don't remember that (laughs) okay well i I may have made that up and if so somebody let me know but uh (laughs) i thought that they were like forcibly able to take information and i thought like that's pretty powerful and like we had been talking about tracking them maybe they did i I don't know i didn't didn't the next um scene or the next chapter actually we get skipping ahead but aragorn kind of talking about some of their abilities and the way that they they function you know what i mean they they like they see better in the dark and the way that they see people is like through they can't see through eyes they kind of use they can sense like essence and people's like auras or something um and like high noon from now but yeah at like high noon they can't they can't see basically at all so like during the day you're fairly safe from them they use like yeah, servants I, and like spies and horses to see. Yeah, I mean they are they're they're more like hunters, and so they're a little. I think they're just a little bit more subtle in the books than they are maybe in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like in the movie, they start out this way, but then they become I don't know something different. Uh, it, it's they're 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 like at the same time as they're hunters, they're also like warriors, and and like these super powerful things that like Gandalf can't even face alone. You know. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's. Yeah, we should continue to, to kind of to kind of track that uh, what happens with them. All right, so before we get to chapter eleven, I think we should stop and take a second and tell you about Audible. Yes, Audible is an app that you can use to listen to audiobooks, and they have like something like eighty thousand in their collection. They've given us an affiliate link. It's audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film, and with that, you get thirty free days to their service and and one free audiobook in their collection. Yeah, you do have to use it to sign up for their service. Uh, we should make sure we're indicating that. It's not just like use it and get a free one. But if you haven't signed up to their service for the first time, do it now. And you can use that link, audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. Then you get a free book and you get 30 days before you get another book. Um, and I thought I'd go ahead and recommend The Wheel of Time, uh, which begins with, I believe, The Eye of the World by Robert Jordan. And the reason I'm going to recommend it is because if you're a fan of Tolkien and you're a fan of this kind of fantasy and you want maybe a slightly more modern take on it, but but still within the same, you know, like same feel, the same adventurous spirit. I think you get a lot of that in Wheel of Time. So, and it's like a massive series, which you can get each book for a credit, you know, so you could you can definitely get your money's worth there. Um, but yeah, Wheel of Time by Robert Jordan. First book is called Eye of the World. Recommend it. It's something I've never read, and uh, it's been recommended to me for a long time and I, I think i will take the plunge here eventually they're so they're really big and intimidating but i like longer books so i'm looking <laughs> forward to it yeah i mean like i read them when i was a teenager and i and i liked them a lot then um and i think my tastes gravitated more towards the grimdark more towards game of thrones type stuff but i definitely recognize that it is of a uh, it is of a kind with this kind of this kind of fantasy and so yeah that'll be my recommendation uh, so to get that just go to audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film Chapter 11, A Knife in the Dark. So, uh, yeah, so the, fi- the black figures also t- talk a lot more in the book. I don't know if you noticed that, but they say, like, open in the name of Mordor <laughs> mm-hmm. to the, to when, they, when they're at the door. Which I thought um, was, like, a little cheesy because I, yeah, I, I mean, like, I guess it's just because of Peter Jackson's, like, version of yeah, them. I think more yeah, of, like, you can't help but mm-hmm, You can't help but picture the Peter Jackson version that don't talk as much, although they do talk a little bit. So the black writers, in, in kind of a flash aside to back to uh frodo's house where he left uh uh daddy bulger 
who was there kind of guarding it and like pretending to be him. He's there when the Black Riders show up and they say open in the name of Mordor. He he is like I guess he's like hiding. Do you remember exactly how this goes down? I think he's he, hiding. Like in, he like runs out. He like makes it out of the house as they make it into the house, and he like somehow right. escapes. Yeah, and so he like alerts all of Buckland and Buckland to bring fire, and that there's like invaders and stuff, and they chase the black figures who see that Frodo is off and basically leave. And as they're as they're leaving, the 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 writers actually go let the people. Let them blow their horns. Sauron will, Sauron will deal with them later. So it's interesting another bit of like thought we get from an actual Black Rider here. And uh, then we get back to Bree where Frodo wakes up. He sees Aragorn sitting at a window and he rouses them all. They, they go back in the morning. They see that all their mattresses have been slashed. Their ponies were set free from the stables. And Strider is uh, concerned about the food that was lost. Um, they, 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 he basically says like, we weren't going to be able to outrun them on ponies anyway, because they're, they're on horses and they're faster. Um, but instead they're going to, they're going to carry their supplies on their backs. Um, Sam says he can carry enough for two men, which I thought was a nice bit of foreshadowing to what happens much later in this, in this series. Yep. Um, and yeah, they get this overpriced pony that's like really like bony and, and old, um, for like three times its price. And that's their only pony they have. And otherwise they just all carrying their stuff. And, uh, we learned that the, the ponies went off to Tom Bombadil's house of all places. <laughs> um, yeah. So they gather more supplies and they leave town. That's like buzzing with excitement and everyone's talking about what happened. And Sam chucks an apple in some guy's face for being, for, <laughs> for being rude. <laughs> um, and yeah, they set off, uh, this wandering course through the woods and marshes, Takes them several days. They're getting bit by midges. It's very uncomfortable. Um, they're not eating a lot of food. And then one night, Frodo sees this light flashing in the distance. And Strider doesn't know what it is. Um, so they don't know what to do about it. And so they head on. Uh, eventually, they arrive at Weathertop. And Aragorn, Aragorn warns them of spies of the enemy. So they could be watching, like crows and birds and rats and all this stuff. Um the hobbits are losing weight, getting smaller because they're not eating as much as they're used to. And Strider t- starts telling tales of uh, like old Gilgalad and the fall of Gilgalad. And he knows all this like old elven lore. He entertains them with that story as they get to Weathertop where they were hoping to meet Gandalf, but find no Gandalf there. Um, it's this old tall hill covered in old stonework. Um, they see remnants of a fire that's out now. Yeah, but no other, no sign of Gandalf. They see a bunch of, like, footprints, I guess. They see the stone has runes on it, maybe left by Gandalf, says something about being here three nights ago, But Str- and Strider thinks that he was, if so, he was the one who was responsible for those lights. That was, like, him fighting off his attackers. And he, he thinks that maybe he was attacked on his way to, uh, to meet them, and so he wants to just go on to Rivendell without them. Uh, around that time, Frodo sees black specks coming across the uh, across the land, and they realize that it's the, the writers. They, he, this is where he reveals some. He says that the writers don't see the world as they do. They can smell the blood of living things. They can feel their presence. They can also feel the ring. So that's what you were talking about earlier, right? Strider says fire is their friend in the wilderness, and that they should use that against the the, the black writers. So they lay a fire down in the, like the dell. Um, and Strider warns them that uh, they're not going to be able to have much dinner, so they just need to tighten their belts. 
So they sit around the fire and he starts telling more tales of, of the older days, even with like, even though they just saw the black riders, it's like, whatever. It's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of funny how like constantly can stop and like a sing a song and tell a tale. Mm-hmm. So we learn about Tanuviel. He sings a song about her and about the Silmarils and about the jewels that were in the crowns and Luthien who dies. And there's a lot in here that I feel like, you know, we could really dig into if we wanted to like get into the lore of the world. We would need I to love read the Silmarillion probably. Yeah, but um, like this, but this, I don't know a lot about it. Just like reading all this stuff, like I'm fascinated, and I start looking up like like family trees and like what who did mm-hmm. what and what time, and I I think it's super fascinating, very confusing, and and like there's so much to, like it's very overwhelming. But I thought it was really cool. Um, since we since we were at this point. I wanted to mention that like there's a lot of a lot of like traveling in these chapters yeah. here. A lot of like going through the woods and you're talking about getting bit by bugs and all this other stuff and they're just traveling with Aragorn. Uh as soon as they started traveling on foot, I couldn't help but like hum the Howard Shore Lord of the Rings theme uh <laughs> <laughs> from the movie. Anytime they're mm-hmm. just traveling, I'm like da 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 Is yeah. that just me? Because it's like, no, I can't, I, <laughs> I can't like not I different reaction, get excited yeah. about it. So, the, so where I went, and I actually, I'm glad you brought that up because it reminded me that I wanted to talk about this. Um, I, I, whenever I was reading their like traveling through the woods and, 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 and Tolkien loves to stop and like describe the weather and describe the way the land looks and describe the way the wind feels and all that stuff. It makes me want to go camping. It makes me want to like be in the outdoor, like in the in wilderness and go outdoors and hike and you know, I have, I have a history doing that. I was in Boy Scouts growing up, and then I've continued to camp. You know, I, we still camp a couple times a year here in Oregon, where it's, like, a lot like Middle Earth. <laughs> and, yeah, it just makes me, like, whenever I, I feel this, like, yearning, like, I really want to go back out and, and like, be be a part of nature and be in the woods, that kind of stuff. You, you ever get that feeling reading this? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I was big into being outdoors and stuff a lot. As a kid, me and my family would go camping, like, once a month for a while uh because we did this like kind of boy scouts ish thing but uh what's funny is that i read a lot of this book i had like a little fort uh in the woods so i would go read books like in the woods with like in the like after school or whatever and uh like i didn't really make the connection until you said something about it but like for whatever reason it does make me think of like being outdoors and like the wind like if you just like have a nice breeze and like in some shade while you're reading a book like Mm-hmm. it's it's great man it, and it's like the right way to experience this because you're like oh i'm getting bit by bugs too <laughs> well i mean there's something to be said for that like discomfort too though right like you know we've spent so much of our time in like a climate controlled you know room that's mm-hmm. where we spend all, most of our time right and there's something to be said for like being outdoors when it's like raining or when it's oh, cold yeah. and it's so relaxing windy, and it's like a little bit uncomfortable mm-hmm. but there's something nice about that because it's like it's raw it's like it's real it's connecting with like the earth and the way it is and you know when we're not controlling it with our technology yeah um so in that sense that kind of like throwback um rustic nature of this book is is you know i don't know it's a lot of fantasy does this well and this is one thing that appeals to me about fantasy because at the same time that i can be kind of a futurist and i can be really into technology like i i at the other hand on the other side of that like i love kind of this throwback to a simpler time and i love you know, the idea of like going on an adventure in the woods and just having like your pack on your back and, and, you know, the food you can bring with you. And I don't know, something about that's just really appealing. I agree. Yeah. It's, it's really important, I think, to just reset every once in a while and get out there and, and rough it. 
So uh, Sam senses some people creeping up on them, and come to find out, it's the it's the the Ring Race who still have not been called Ring Race up to this point. I just keep calling them that. Um, the Black Riders um, <laughs> show up, and they are they encircle as like the hobbits put their back to the fire, each grabbing like sticks. And uh, Frodo, it immediately cuts to Frodo. There's not a lot of action writing in Tolkien's work, I want to say, too, because that's like a huge difference between this and the movies, right? Well, yeah. It, it, um, the movies play up the action, but like Tolkien doesn't write action hardly at all. Mm-hmm. I think a major one that comes to mind for me is um, the Battle of Five Armies isn't something oh, yeah. that we get at all <laughs> in the book, in The Hobbit at all. And then it's Well, we get it. It's just like, you mean it's not described. Like it's hardly right. hardly described at all. Yeah. It's like a page. It's like a page of text. Bilbo gets like knocked out at the beginning of it and then he wakes up afterwards and we're like, oh, well, this happened. Yeah, you're right. I think that does happen. Yeah, I mean, we should talk about that when we when we get to The Hobbit one day down the road. But um, yeah. yeah, in general, Tolkien just, he's not, he's not, he doesn't write action and swordplay. You know what I mean? Like R.A. Salvatore, <laughs> he, he writes that stuff, you know, and various other fantasy authors to a different degree. But that's not Tolkien. Um, so we immediately get Frodo, who's who's like overcome with the sense that he wants to put the ring on and he can't resist it and he puts it on. And when he puts it on, the five figures turn into these like white versions of themselves wearing gray robes and silver helms. And this one comes up and has like this steel sword that it stabs him with and stabs him in the shoulder and he passes out. And that's the end of chapter 12. Oh, right before he passes out, he sees Strider wielding two two firebrands and like get in like fighting them but it's just like literally it's one sentence but yeah that's what we i, I remember the part where in parentheses it was like he throws one into the wraith's face and it <laughs> burns him down i'll never Does forget a flourish that. yeah yeah no, you don't get any of that writing <laughs> so yeah that's the end of chapter 11 I, I just i can't this is another scene where it's like i can't not think of the the, the movie it's like it, yeah. it just is that scene and and thinking of like being when when Frodo puts the the ring on and sees the wraiths in that in that like wraith form for the first time and the way that he's like in their world and and uh, this gets punctured by the sword and he I think he gets a hit in right or like he he attacks back at yeah them. he's I think he slashes it once and then gets stabbed yeah so yeah that was yeah it was cool to 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 kind of be back in that scene and and see how it's played out plays out in the book. All right, chapter 12 is called Flight to the Ford. This is our last chapter in book one. Um, it's interesting that this book's divided into book one and book two. I don't know why, but it is. Um, also, there are other fantasy books that do the same thing. It's kind of a odd choice to me, but I guess I can see it. So Frodo wakes up asking, uh, where's the Paled King? And it's clear that he's thinking about the, the, you know, the one that stabbed him. And Strider says, oh, the writer's left. Um, he's not really sure why. Um, he's also not sure why there's only five of them that attacked when he knows that there are nine. And uh, yeah, we learned that Frodo has this deadly wound and it's like getting worse and spreading. And he, sh- he has actually he has the scene where he picks up the blade and it like melts and like the go down to just its hilt. And he says, uh, this is like a special, you know, sword that has given you this wound. It's, you know, it's a Mordor blade or whatever. Curse, <laughs> and yeah. Um, yeah, curse blade. And he goes out to find a special healing plant, which he uses to put on on his wounds. And it helps some. Frodo feels a little better. And so they continue on. Um, 
over the next few days, uh, he starts feeling worse, and 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 uh, they don't see any, they don't see any sign of the riders chasing them. This is another situation of like something that was very like fast paced and dramatic in the movie. It's just like much more spread out. It takes several you know several days, almost, you know, over a week. Pippin finds a path. They follow it, and the path leads to a door. Inside it, they see bones. Uh, Pippin thinks it's a troll hole, and come to find out, they've they found the three stone trolls from Bilbo's adventure back in the day which like we talked about how you know you read this book first so like mm-hmm. I'm wondering like you know when you hear about the trolls from from Bilbo's day you're just like oh what is that talking about is well it's more like lore or? exactly exactly so it's just yeah. when I read it it was just more lore I was like oh more stuff that we're not supposed to know that much about but like it was Bilbo's cool adventure that he went on yeah see I feel like it's almost like fan service for the for the Hobbit readers you well, know what I mean I like do, it's yeah. like him yeah, yeah, you know, it's like it's like Tolkien going, "Hey, remember that?" And exactly. Like giving you a nudge, um, but it is cool to see that, you know, um, at, you know, as someone who loved the Hobbit, I, I I appreciated it. I also think it's cool how Frodo looks at Bilbo's journey. Like we kind of get a perspective of like he looks at Bilbo's journey as some this like light romp adventure, like kind of how we think of the Hobbit. But like there are some yeah. dark parts in the Hobbit where like they have to deal with you know a fucking dragon. So sure. Uh, in danger but he just thinks of like oh he was just off on an easy adventure and i'm off on this deadly adventure where like a death is yeah. around every corner and all this stuff and like for some reason seeing the trolls made of stone makes him and thinking of bilbo's journey like brings him like some joy even though he's like sick and dying he's like he's like oh this is at least like 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 the, I, I don't know it just brings him happiness to, to think about bilbo's easy journey yeah yeah and it, totally, it like makes sense because it also gives him like he knows that bilbo survived his ordeal right so maybe it makes him think like maybe he can too so they keep going on and they hear these hooves on the road and they get all freaked out thinking it's the dark riders but in fact it is uh an elf glorfindel who has come to their aid um he talks he says that the nine are abroad um and he left this token which uh aragorn found and yeah they, they they take up with glorfindel he puts frodo on his big white horse who's super fast and he says, we got to get you to Rivendell. Um, that's the only pl- place we're going to be able to heal you. At last, they, they get to this, like, big open flat. And as they're getting to it, all of a sudden, the riders all descend upon them. You know, like, they're now they're here, you know, and they show up. And um, he sends Frodo off on the horse, because it's, like, the fastest horse, to go ahead. And the, uh, the nine converge on them. And as he's riding across, Frodo feels the riders, like, pulling at him. And, like, the, you know, the ring wants to go to them, essentially. And Frodo yells at them, like, go back to Mordor or whatever, once he gets to the other side. And they're like, ha, they like laugh at him. They're like, oh, we will take you. And they come forward. And uh, Frodo raises his sword and says, you know, you won't <laughs> have me. And, and uh, then all of a sudden the river rages and uh, it's filled with uh, white riders in the in the water. And it overtakes the riders and like basically washes them away. And then Frodo collapses and hears and sees no more. And that's the end of book one. So yeah, this this is very different than the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I got to give Peter Jackson props because uh, I think having Arwen come in and do some cool shit here is just a much better introduction to her character. Well, yeah, not to mention like I think I I, I mean I know that people ding this story for and rightfully there's like there's no women in the story really, right? Yeah, and no women at all. <laughs> yeah, and uh. I, I want to give Peter Jackson props just for the fact that like he he gave Arwen something more to do than even than even Tolkien did, 
and like yeah it, like that's a cool scene where she comes and saves him and she i think she like basically summons the the water in the in the movie yeah like she's the one who, who yeah. makes the water like trample the, the, the yeah it's her, it's her it's her magic or something yeah we learned is, you know in the book in the book version it's it's not that we learned later that it's like gandalf and elrond combined did that right um but yeah, it's also, it's interesting because it's like, it's a moment where economy of characters actually works in the favor of the filmmaker here because honestly, that might have been what he was going for too, just to not have to introduce Glorfindel, right? Like we don't, he doesn't want to introduce this other character. He has to explain, you know, instead he uses Arwen who's important and going to be important going forward. All right. Book two begins with chapter one called Many Meetings and Frodo wakes up and finds himself in a bed. And he has this voice that is Gandalf telling him that it's October the 24th and you are in the house of Elrond. And uh, he's, you know, Gandalf is there. And that's, I guess that's like a, fam- that's another famous day or like the famous day. It's like Lord of the Rings day, April, October 24th, um, which is also my anniversary. So nice. It's pretty awesome. Uh, you know, you were at my wedding and you, mm. you might remember that we played, uh, was like concerning hobbits, the like hobbiton music. Mm-hmm um while people were like walking in and stuff so we definitely we didn't have like a lord of the rings wedding but we 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 you know we had some homages yeah it was cool it's a little some game of thrones in there too i remember um you guys played the the version that plays at the beginning of the podcast right (laughs) (laughs) yeah the like dub beat dub step one yeah it was not that one at their wedding but it would be funny if it was so yeah gandalf has come to see frodo awake and Tells him about the ring wraiths. This is the first time they're called ring wraiths that I, that I that I caught at least. Talks about Strider, and Frodo says that he's grown fond of him. And uh, yeah, this is when Gandalf says there are a few left like him. He is one of the old kings, one of the great people. And Frodo's kind of surprised to hear this, like Strider. Frodo's feeling better. He can move his arms a little. He's not as cold as he was. And uh, Gandalf says that there was like a fragment of the sword in or the knife or whatever it was like in him that that Elrond had to remove. But now that he's, he should be better because it's gone. And he says like, you know, don't worry about it. Yeah. He tells the story about Glorfindel and, and uh, how he came down after the, the water washed him away and like fought him off the rest of them. And basically that the ring race weren't destroyed, but their horses were killed, which kind of cripples them and their ability to move freely. Um, And so, yeah, there, it seemed like they're kind of negated for now. Frodo wishes that he could see Bilbo again and then falls asleep. And then um, yeah, when he wakes up again, he there's a lot of talk about Rivendell being this wonderful house, like one of the best houses in all the world. And um, Sam takes him out and he's geek- Sam's geeking out about the elves because he loves elves. And they, you know, he meets up with Merry and Pippin again. You know, Frodo's feeling better now. Pippin jokingly calls him the Lord of the Ring. Which I thought was mm-hmm. interesting because then uh, Gandalf is like, no, it's not Frodo. That's Sauron. You know, don't call him that. But I, I think it's funny that the first time we hear someone called that, it's Frodo, right? So, like, well, is it Frodo or is it or is it Sauron? When I was a kid, I thought, well, I mean, even now, I guess I'd go back and forth on it. But when I was a kid, I was very <laughs> adamant about the fact that it was Frodo. Like, Frodo was the Lord of the Ring after reading the story. Yeah. Um, but I think it's probably Sauron just because, it, I don't know, it makes more <laughs> sense that way. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, it probably is Sauron. But it's kind of funny to, like, joke about it being Frodo, you know? I like it. It's like an in-universe joke because it's about it's a joke about the name of the series, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Sam like geeking out about the elves is also like again us, the audience, because yeah. oh, and this is a great place actually to ask you because we're about to talk about some dwarves and some elves. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your favorite race in Middle Earth? 
And I, that sounds like a sketchy question, but like, like specifically, <laughs> like, what's your favorite midi, like fantasy race in in uh, Middle My favorite fantasy race in all of Middle Earth. I mean, I like them all for different reasons, but like, yeah, I have one that. Yeah, I mean, like, I like them all for different reasons too. I guess, you know, I feel like the easy thing to say would be hobbits, and that's probably true. But I also feel like it's kind of like it's kind of a cop out. Um, so I'm gonna go with the dwarves. Actually, I think the dwarves nice. are really cool. Yeah, they're they're fun. I think. I've always liked the dwarves, but um, yeah. can't justify like like saying the, that I like them more than elves because the elves are just like ridiculous, like in every way. Yeah. Everything they do is just like overpowered. They can like they're <laughs> silent hunters that do all this crazy old magic stuff. Yeah, they're basically immortals. But the dwarves are the funniest by far. Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, and I don't like the dwarves because they're funny. Is the f- funny is like the is the interesting thing. Like I, I like them because they they're like they're kind of like the hobbits. Like they kind of appreciate you know like good food and cheer and song and they're but they're hardy and but they also like um they get shit done. Like they're builders. They're 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 they forge things. Yeah, they're very like hard and stubborn like the the rocks that they mine and uh yeah they're they're definitely one of my i mean there's not many but they're definitely one of my favorites but i always put elves and hobbits above above dwarves for whatever reason well there i mean one of my gripes with the movies is that the the in general peter jackson tends to treat the dwarves like they're just this like punchline you know yeah. They're they're very silly in the movies. Um and I, I just feel like I mean, yes, in the Hobbit they are pretty silly, but like I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how just how goofy Gimli is as we go forward. Definitely. Because my memory of him from the book is that he is not nearly the kind of butt of the joke that he is often in the movie. Yeah, agreed. Alright, so let's move on with this scene. So there's a big feast that Frodo is at, at like a high table at. We meet Elrond for the first time. He's described as being like young and hardy looking, but also venerable and clearly ancient. So, you know, he's describing as, as, as being a lot younger, I guess, than I imagine him from, from you know, seeing the movie. Um, we also meet Arwen for the first time. She's sitting beside Elrond, who is her father. We also we meet Gloin for the first time, or, um, you know, since The Hobbit, I guess. And, and Frodo catches up with him. He's like much older now and he... Him and 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 Frodo kind of tell talk about Bilbo and and you know the old days. Uh, uh, Gloin um, wants to know like more about why Frodo's here, but he's not going to tell him because he knows that there's like this council coming up. Um, he talks about a lot of goings on in different parts of the world, and then the the feast ends, and Frodo leaves, and uh, and when he's like walking out. He finds Bilbo, who's sitting outside of the like main hall, and he's just like been sitting there thinking, and he comes up to him, kind of surprises surprises him, and um, yeah, Bilbo Bilbo is here, and 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 he hasn't seen him until this point, so it's kind of this big surprise. It hasn't been very long for us, but it's been like you know thirty something years since they've seen each other. Yeah, because all that time passed early on. So Bilbo reveals that he went to Dale, and he had found that Balin had gone away. And so then he came back up to Rivendell, basically, and he's been hanging out here for a while since. And he keeps referring to the Dunedon, who is his friend, and he wants him to help him finish this song he's been working on. He then asks Frodo, do you have the ring? 
because I, I would like I'd like very much to see it again, essentially. Right. And uh, Bilbo, or, uh, Frodo pulls it out and then Bilbo goes to like touch it and Frodo draws away and the shadow passes over Bilbo and he sees him as like a wrinkled and like grasping creature, kind of golem like. And uh, but but then it passes when he puts it away and he says, I'm, you know, I'm sorry that you you've you have this burden now. Then Strider arrives and we find out that he is also the Dunedon, um, which means man of the West, I guess, and like Elvish. He comes and he uh, is here to help Bilbo with his song, I guess. Right. And they're, they're friends and uh, they go to they go to work on the song and Frodo listens to them as he's singing it and uh, feels like a golden river is flowing over him as he falls asleep. And he hears this song like as he's dreaming. And this song has like a lot of lore in it, too, that I can't really get into. But, yeah, there's talk of this, another Silmaril. And it seems to be kind of about kind of about Aragorn himself at times and just a lot of stuff. I don't know. Did you could you make heads or tails of like what's all going on in this song? I tried to, but it's it's like it's so much lore stuff that I feel like I would have to really, really research. It was also a very long song. So, so yeah, it's very long, goes on for several pages. And then, uh, yeah, we had that joke where they, they asked him to sing it again. He's like, no, I can't. I don't have enough. I don't have enough strength. And we're like, OK, good. Thank you. <laughs> and yeah, he wakes up and um, they he goes back to his room with Bilbo and they talk some more and they talk about the fair things they've seen in their journeys. And then kind of Sam shows up like a little like um, to like check on him, Frodo, make sure he's getting enough sleep for tomorrow's big council. And then uh, he says, OK, th- he will. And then that's the end of chapter. So one. speaking of Sam. Um, Sam is like again like this very like I I see it from what I from what I like our Frodo's perspective that we get I see Sam in Frodo's perspective as like this like more like loyal servant and I just feel like that like it it doesn't do well and I'm sure like as we go further and further and further into the the books it becomes more friendship than anything but just having that basis as as like and the movie he calls him master frodo there just doesn't seem to be quite as much it yeah. just seems to be more like friendly like like childhood friends looking out for each other in the movies and here it's like mm-hmm. very specifically like he's tending to him and caring for him in like a manservant way instead of being like a friend way i didn't like it as much yeah i mean it's just kind of an out it's just kind of a, um outdated way of looking at things like we we talked about with tolkien like he grew up you know pretty rich and it seems like you know at times, at least in his life, and it sounds like when he lived with his with his um was his uncle or friend of the family, whoever raised him, it seemed like they had money um, and they had servants. And so he grew up in a time which having like servants in the home wasn't weird, and you could you know people had good relationships with them. Um, so maybe he's leaning on that kind of thing, like he wanted to have that kind of relationship here. Um, I don't know. It's like an Alfred to his Batman, right? Like he's like an Alfred. But yeah. and like so yeah, Alfred is seen as like this like noble figure that gives Batman advice and stuff, but it, it just like it just the this friendship beats in the movie hit so much harder because it's nothing it has nothing to do with servitude. It has it's all to do with like friendship. I see what you're and, saying. Friendship, yeah. Yeah, I like that. Um so let's get into this last chapter because it's a big one. And this is the Council of Elrond. Elrond. Um, Frodo meets Gandalf, goes in, and all the like assorted lords are, are there. Arwen's not there; so she at least she isn't mentioned. And uh, once again, kind of the uh, the patriarchy is on display here, as it's just a bunch of men st- standing around. There's there's no women to be seen. Um, but yeah, so they all there, and they're and the whole point of the council is to like 
tell all of these assorted leaders the history of what's been going on with the ring, how it's come to be here, and then to make a choice about what they're going to do with it. So we meet we meet several important figures. We meet Gimli, son of Gloin, who is by his father. Uh, we meet Legolas, who is a messenger of the King of the Elves from Northern Mirkwood. And we also meet a, a man who is proud and stern of glance. Uh, he's carrying this big horn, and his name is Boromir, and he is a man from the south. So Glowin speaks here real quick. I just wanted to mention this. He speaks of Moria, and he mentions how they delve too deep there. And basically he says that Balin went with Ori and Nori to Moria, basically, and we learn in a little bit, to seek one of the rings of power that was given to the dwarves that was lost. And then also like to rediscover how to forge things. And he went there and like he he apparently got the forges up up and working for a while, but then on like it went silent and no one's heard of him, heard from him in years. And this bit of backstory I think is really cool because I, I feel like we don't get a lot of that in the movie, and it was a little bit more mysterious. Like, why? What's going on? Why are they going to Moria? Why would they do that? Like, I like this idea of like there was this expedition that went in and attempted to do this very specific thing, and they we just haven't heard it from them in a while. And I don't know. It's it. This makes more sense to yeah, me. Yeah, especially guess. because it's people who were in Bilbo's company. So it's like yeah, even we have another connection, exactly. another degree of connection to that. Um, and yeah, I think I think as a because I'm like as a reader, I'm interested now. Like I want to go to Moria because I want to find out what happened to him. Whereas I feel like in the movie when they go there, it's very random. And it's like we don't know that we don't know the Balins there and all that stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, we find I think we find out when when they get there, they find like a dead body in the movie. Yeah. yeah. So Elrond um, is talking about this is the story of like how Sauron forged the ring and betrayed the, the forgers. He says he's seen three ages. He was at the battle. He saw Gilgalad die. He saw Isildur cut the ring from the hand of Sauron himself. And he was there trying to tell Isildur to throw the ring in the fire, but he didn't listen. And I think that's that's like a cool moment where it's like this thing happened thousands of years ago, but like I was yeah. there. I don't know. That, that's, that's a cool, like, really it's, powerful so this, moment, This right? story is so cool because it feels, because everything that's happening around it before and after make you makes you feel like this is just like a chapter out of a book. Like, this is just one of the many adventures that's happened in, in Middle-earth. There's so much that's gone on and so much lore that Tolkien wrote for this. And uh, right. just the, I don't know, just the fact that, like, some characters like Tom Bombadil and like like Elrond have been around forever and seen all this cool stuff yeah. like he sent Elrond says something like he's seen like three ages of man like how much how yeah. many cool stories you know conceivably could there be within those three <laughs> ages so he also talks about how in that battle they destroyed the tower but not its roots and how he talks about in the land of Gondor there's this white tree and uh, which we know later is important um, and how the, the men in Gondor watch along the edge of Mordor and that Minas Morgul and Minas Tirith basically are like stand at, at opposition with each other. And uh, this is when Boromir pipes in. He's like, yeah, we alone keep the enemy at bay. And we've had, we we there's smoke rising from Mount Doom. And we know that the Mordor has allied itself with the Easterlings. And, you know, it talks about fighting them. And it sounds like they're really on the front lines, right? Like they're they're like really like Gondor has been fighting these orcs and these armies and kind of protecting everyone else. 
and he's a little bit uh he's a little bit sour about it which which like, i get like he wants he's like you guys need to help <laughs> like i'm hoping that's why i'm here <laughs> basically yeah. um it is interesting that he says that his brother had a dream and in that dream um there was like a council and it and specifically it says the halfling fourth shall stand um which is part of the dream so again another person who seems to have kind of predicted the future here like this is all I don't know. Like, is it being it's being foretold? So it feels very like prophetic and maybe like meant to be fate, all that stuff. Right. Yeah, I think it's Tom Bombadil, right? (laughs) All comes back to Tom Bombadil, Tom Bombadillo. Um, Aragorn throws down his broken sword and he says that he is Aragorn and and, you know, descended descended from a Sildor. And Gandalf tells him, tells Frodo, pull out the ring and uh when he does, he says, behold, is Sildor's bane. And then they say the rhyme and they basically say that the sword is going to be made again when the ring comes by prophecy. And Bilbo is annoyed because Boromir is very dismissive of all this. Like Boromir is very skeptical and, and Bilbo gets annoyed on his behalf. That's also a big difference, too. I don't think Bilbo's at the council in the movie. He might be. I, I don't so think he says kind of anything. If he is. Like, I don't think he says much if he is there. I'm not mm. sure. Yeah, I'm not sure either. We shall, we'll have to watch for that. So uh, Bilbo reveals that the rhyme of the crownless again should become king and all that stuff. Like he made it up himself. Which and, is like, so he, funny. I guess they're passing it off as this like old saying, ancient saying of prophecy. But it's actually it's like a thing he made up, which is pretty, pretty hilarious. Which is it's so good and fitting. And like the fact that Bilbo wrote that, I did not remember that. So like that really cool phrase that we lead off this episode with is Bilbo. Yeah. Yeah, it's Bilbo. So uh, uh, Aragorn Strider, he has many names, uh, basically says that he's been fighting the shadow. It's not just Gondor. And like, that's what the rangers do. They go around and like fight the shadow and, and they're not just wanderers, right? And they protect the simple folk. And uh, at this point, Boromir wants to know how the ring came to be here. And so Bilbo tells his story, uh, uh, basically of the Hobbit. And um, this time he doesn't lie. He tells like the real true story to everyone and how he came to have the ring and then how it came to Frodo. And then Frodo tells his story of how it got to here. So Gandalf fills in the bat, the, all of the gaps, and then he's got his own story to tell. He tells the story of Saruman the White yeah. um, and how and so it's interesting. So he actually spoke with Radagast and uh, Radagast told him that yeah the brown basically said that you know saruman is like warned of the black riders being in the land and that he wants to speak to him and and um so he's gonna go do that we also learned that gandalf and had aragorn find Gollum, which we talked about like how they that came to be last time and um and it wound up with after getting questioned Gollum got sent to the wood elves and um he's supposed to be being held there and then that's when um, Gandalf found out about the words that are on the ring. It's the one ring to rule them all rhyme, right? And he speaks the dark words and everyone's like, oh, shit. And that's when Legolas reveals that Gollum escaped from the Wood Elves and everyone's pissed about that. And basically what happened is they were like letting Gollum walk because they were being kind to him. And then like they got attacked by orcs and a bunch of orcs came and like slew the people who were protecting him and installed and, stole, and um uh took Gollum away so now he's kind of out and who knows where so uh back with Gandalf talking to Radagast he um he tells him that he's gonna go meet with Saruman but he wants him to speak to all the beasts he knows and send mess send um them to Orthanc Orthunk 
um, Orthunk or Orthank? I think Orthank. Orthank. That that's basically why the the uh, eagle ends up going there later, which I didn't know. Like that's not really what happens in the movie, so that's interesting. He like whispers um, to like a butterfly or like a moth or something yeah. in the movie. <laughs> Right, right, right. And so then, uh, we, yeah, we hear that Gandalf goes there to Isengard. What did you think of Radagast here? Because this is like our one bit of one of the other, you know, like, wizards I'll, I'll of say the that order. before the Hobbit um, film came out, I thought it was so cool that there were other... I mean, I still think it's like pretty cool, but Radagast yeah. was kind of interesting in The Hobbit. We could talk about it on our Hobbit episode, but... <laughs> yeah, not necessarily, not necessarily the greatest portrayal, but I like to think of him as... Um, this is kind of the precursor to the druid class in Dungeons and Dragons because he can like change shape and he's like one with nature and he can control creatures and he's a but he's a wizard like he's a magic user. Yeah. I don't know. I, I always thought of him as like the proto druid. Yeah, he's really cool. And just the fact that there's I mean, just knowing that there's more than just Saruman and, and Gandalf is pretty cool. So when Gandalf is talking to Saruman, uh, he basically lays it all out that he has decided he's going to work with Sauron and they're going to take uh, rule the world together and he invites Gandalf to join him. Gandalf is having none of it. He's like, I've heard these, these speeches before from messengers from Mordor. Basically says, well, then you're going to have to stay here until the end. And he imprisons him on, on the pinnacle of Orthanc, Orthanc, whatever the name of the tower is. <laughs> and um, from there, he can see an orc army being raised. And yeah, he's stuck there, which Frodo says, uh, oh yeah, I saw you in a dream. <laughs> so Radagast uh, basically told the eagle. So the eagle shows up and bears him away. Um, he goes to uh, Gandalf. And Gandalf goes to Rohan, where he, this is all being told in retrospect. So that's why I'm yeah. moving quick, because it's like, you know, this all happens fast. But Gandalf went to Rohan, where he befriended the best horse in all the land, named Shadowfax. And... Uh, took him, wrote, rode him back to try and track down Frodo, and long story short, um, ended up fighting some of the uh, Black Riders on top of Weathertop, um, creating those lights. Aragorn was right about that. And then that was why there was only five of them at different times, because like four would pursue him. And then, uh, yeah, they ended up winding up at uh, Rivendell to meet up with everybody. And that's why you know gandalf's whole thing is like a wizard is never late and all that stuff but he and it like always shows up when he says he will and uh yeah that's i mean he was there technically and then he just had to move he was trying to like lure the riders away from them and he tried to get to rivendale first and all this other stuff he he was he created the the like he put part of the incantation into the the huge like wall of water that got to the wraiths yeah it's kind of weird to know that he was like near like nearby the whole time kind of thing you know but like didn't ever meet up with them but like it's it's also kind of interesting like he couldn't quite catch up to them it's cool so now they come to it what are they going to do with the ring they have different ideas they can either send it over the sea to like the far lands or they can try and like cast it into the sea or they can try and destroy it but they don't know how to do that so they basically go over the first two choices and decide that that's not enough like it's not going to be a final end to that it'll be found you know, we can't just cast it into the sea, all that stuff. And then um, they're like, well, we need to destroy it. But then Boromir is like, well, how about this? 
how about we use it? Um, he's got he's got this idea that 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 this is the thing that that um, Gondor needs. And like like we said before, like they're fighting on they're on the front lines. Like he's people are dying all the time. So like I I get Boromir like where he's coming from here. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like that's what. Yeah. It's that's... not just the thrall of the magic item. It's like it makes sense that if it's, it's this really powerful thing, he's like, why you know why can't we just use it against him? Now clearly it's like he hasn't been listening. Where like <laughs> Elrond said, like we can't use it. We can't wield it. It's only belongs to to him but that's the magic part of it right where it makes you not think about that part of it it's and you just kind of ignore it yeah and that's like the boromir like you buy into boromir's his cause because because like you i mean if people were dying all around you you'd probably want to wield this ring too even though the elves are telling you know yeah so he kind of he kind of relents and he's like okay uh so uh, we oh we also get talk about the other three rings and Elrond says that he thinks that the elven the elven rings that they have um, are not, first off they're not made for war so they're not going to be any help in fighting against them but he also says that he thinks that after the one ring is destroyed that they're actually going to fail and that they'll no longer be able to work their magic which is another big part of like you know I don't know the idea of like the magic going away and stuff and, and right. like this would be a very this would be a world changing event beyond just uh, getting rid of the one ring right mm. uh bilbo speaks up and he says well i see where this is going <laughs> i'm the one who started this so i'll be the one who finishes it i'll i'll destroy the ring which i thought was a pretty funny money moment uh, you know book only and um i like that glowing glowing smiles because he knows him and he knows how brave he is and Gandalf isn't kind to him. He says, you know, I'll, you know, I, I, I appreciate that you want to do this, but now that you have passed on this ring, you really shouldn't have to take it back on. And, and you need to, you need to not do this. So they, they, um, they keep, they all sit around in deep thought, kind of silently thinking about what's going to happen. And everyone's waiting. And this is very different than the movie. And Frodo kind of speaks up and he says, I will take the ring. Do I do not know the way? And, um, it's weird because it fe- it felt to me like everyone was sitting around like already knowing that it had to be Frodo and just waiting for him to volunteer. Yeah, I kind of felt like um, that too. Is is that is that what you got out of it? Yeah, it seemed like he yeah, like they were expecting they were like, "Oh, we all know like the ring bearer, who can bear the ring and all this other stuff." Yeah. And and and, and like Elrond says something about like in this in this mission the weak and the strong can both play a part or something. You know what I mean? Like he's like, he's like setting the table. It feels more manipulative. Like they all kind of know. Whereas, and so like, that's my first big, like, I mean, I've, we've talked about Knox, but like, man, this scene just goes so much better in the movie. Um, It's a heroic, it's a really heroic scene. I love that they're like fighting over like what they're going to do with it. And Frodo just cuts in through the den. You know, I just remember that scene so well. And yeah, uh, I know we're not going to talk about the movie that much, but like that, this, I mean, this moment arguing, is just, yeah. Yeah. it's just like, it's he's so much like, better. I'll take the ring to Mordor. And you're just like, yeah, it's yes. like, yeah, yeah. He's like, it's just like a pure moment of bravery and, and you just really appreciate it in, in the movie, I guess. Um, they, they, they kind of do some of that here, but it feels a little bit like retconning, like, oh yeah, you're so brave for doing that. But they're all sitting there like waiting for him to say, speak up. <laughs> um, I do like that Sam jumps up and says, uh, I'm going to go with you or whatever. And then like Elrond has that line about, yeah, like even when he is summoned to a, to a secret meeting and you are not, which, um, plays really well in the movie too. So, yeah. um, yeah, that's it. That's the end of chapter two here. They've decided that Sam's going to go with Frodo. The fellowship itself actually hasn't really been formed. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming that's coming in the next chapter, but but this is where we're going to end uh, for this episode. So yeah, I just wanted to talk, 
give me your thoughts about the Council of Elrond after I've just kind of muddied my way through that entire bit here. <laughs> um, I mean, it's a big moment, you know? We look back at it as, like, the moment that all of the races of Middle-earth are coming together in this common yeah. in this common cause. Well, I guess they're not fully... Like, the Fellowship is developing right now. Um, we yeah. meet a lot of big players. We hear a lot of good history in the in the world. I mean, it, it's like it's being the Rivendell stuff is is some of my favorite stuff because it's just th- that's the stuff that people in history books later in the Lord of the Rings lore would look back and be like, oh my god, the Council of Elrond. Look, everyone was there, and there, that was them deciding what how to destroy the One Ring. I like that uh, Glowin uh, or Gloin or however you say his name. Um, Brings up the fact that he was once a prisoner of the Wood Elves, and he he's like, "Oh, you know, you once kept me prisoner," and like kind of digging out like old old baggage. And Elrond's like, "You know, let's not let's not air out all these old grievances." Um, yeah, but it's just like another stuff. nice callback to the to the Hobbit, which I, I just appreciate. Yeah, definitely. But it also shows like the like um, that the, all these people aren't all best of friends all the time, right? Like they have they have grievances with each other and like outstanding things. Um, that that have kept them from working together all the time. Um, and so this is kind of like an interesting unifying moment in a way. Yeah, and it's time for everybody to come together and it, against the common enemy. So I think in closing here, because next episode is going to be the end of our, of our book coverage, um, yeah. I wanted to get your take on like Sauron as an enemy and what it means for like him as like, I know there are others that are like kind of like sub underneath Sauron as like part of his minion crowd but what do you think of him as as um as like the antagonist as this like evil force because it's he's like he's like mindless in our eyes like in our perspective he he, he's just like very one-minded like doesn't have any motivation he's just evil like he wants the ring he wants to rule over everyone like how do you think that holds up now in for a modern reader how do you like do you think that it's still because this is like the godfather of modern fantasy uh do you think that it like it's very, it's very, very like black and white, good versus evil. That's kind of where a lot of this, um, you know, the difference between this and like Martin often gets, you know, put at put at the feet of this. Um, yeah. So, in reading this book, I, I am constantly intrigued by whenever we are talking about Sauron, but from before, like in the tales of like Sauron doing things in the past before he was before he was evil and before he was a dark lord. And then, like, I don't know, like, it's interesting because it's like the idea of him is he used not to be that way. And then, like, over time, he became the Dark Lord we know now. Right. And he's very tricky. And like he tricked the for you know, the the people into forging the rings for him under a ruse that he was like doing something else. So I don't know. It's like he's not as one note, I guess, as I think of him in the movie. Like, it seems like he had some motivations early on. And it just has twisted him now into where he's almost more of like now he is more of like a force of just evil, but he is interesting and in, in like in that way too. Like he like if if I think of him more as not maybe not a person but like a like a being who was more nuanced in the past and just like over time has just fully gone full evil and just wants to control the world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And that's, I agree with that because they, they talk about how he has, he had a master at one time and like the idea that he, because I think of him as like very one note, like very evil, evil, evil. But the fact that you bring that up, he, it seems like he had his own wants and desires. And then maybe 
even the ring completely twisted him. Like I know it's his ring and it's his evils, but like maybe just like having that power twisted yeah. him to being just further twisted ultimate him. evil. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's I mean, is the power in the ring Sauron's power, or is or you know what I mean, or is it like a separate thing that could then affect him and make him even worse? That's an interesting thought. I don't know. Um, yeah, we should definitely keep an eye out for any other lore we can like tap into where it talks about that as we continue on reading these books. All right, so I think that's going to be it for us for this week. We'll be back next week with the last few chapters of this book and kind of finishing out our book coverage before we get to the movie. Um, I wanted to ask you, go ahead and click that subscribe button wherever you're listening to this because that really helps our numbers out. Um, which helps us get higher on lists, get seen by more people. And then if you are feeling uh, generous, uh, leaving us a rating and a review on whatever site you're using, um, that really helps. That helps us get the word out. That helps people see that uh, real people listen to this show and enjoy it. So huge help, and we would appreciate it if you did that. Yeah, and some another way that you can, you can kind of help us get the word out there is uh, if you see anything we post, anything you want to post to us on our social media, um, you know, retweet, share anything we post. Uh, we're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Ink to Film, and we're pretty active on there as well. Absolutely. Oh, I also wanted to say we have a book club on Goodreads. If you happen to be on Goodreads, it's called the Ink to Film Book Club. If you just search for that, you should be able to find it. Come join it. We talk about different adaptations on there, uh, upcoming ones, ones we've covered on the show, ones we haven't covered on the show. Um, yeah, it's got a little, got a little community starting to grow there. So we'd love to have you come join. Also, if you wanted to join our community, we have a pretty new newsletter that you can join. Uh, oh, yeah. we have a link that we have in our, in our description here and we post it all over yeah. Facebook and, and Twitter. So, uh, if you see that join our newsletter and you can get some, some early information about things that we're thinking of doing coming up soon it's where we'll be posting yeah our... i haven't i haven't sent out an, a, one yet but i'm i'm planning to at some point here soon <laughs> <laughs> also if you'd like to send us feedback let us know how this episode was let us know things you're excited about for the next episode anything like that you can always send us an email and that you would send that to ink to film at gmail.com all right and we just want to say thank you to audible they gave us an affiliate link again. It's audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. And with that, again, you get 30 free days to their service and one free audiobook in their collection. And then the following month, you would get one more credit for another book. And also, thank you to Music Archive for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, so that's it for this week. We'll see you next week for the end of the book. Until then, I'm Luke. And I'm James. See ya.